When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to another exciting edition of the Pointless Exercise Podcast. It's time to remember this crap with Mike Donahue, but we've got some excitement at the very top of the show here. Support for Remember This Crap is brought to you by Manscaped. Who's the best in men's below-the-waist grooming champions of the world? Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped just launched their fourth-generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. You heard that right, the 4.0. Join over 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping for those of you living in Bangladesh. Yes, it will be free to ship with the code REMEMBER20 at manscaped.com. So imagine shaving with a sleek, well-designed, and optimized trimmer that makes shaving time your favorite time in the bathroom. I'm one of the... Actually, I'm not yet. I'm going to be one of the first people to try the new 4.0. So is Mike. Same here. And I'm sure we'll be blown away by the performance. It's it's in the mail, as they say. Um, Manscaped engineered the ultimate groin and body trimmer by focusing on intelligent functionality and an incredibly comfortable grooming experience the fourth-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin-safe technology. The upgraded trimmer includes a multi-function on-off switch that can engage a travel lock. You don't want that thing vibrating in your suitcase. because you know, 20% of the time, it's not a razor. It also gives you the ability to turn the 4,000K... 4,000K? Is that like 4 million? Anyway, LED spotlight on and off when needed for a more precise shave. The Lawnmower 4.0 even allows you to customize your trim through additional guard lengths with sizes 1 through 4. Did I mention wireless charging? Of course I didn't. I haven't mentioned any of that stuff yet. The new wireless charging system uses electromagnetic induction, which can help battery length last longer. So men, if you've been shaving with the same nut trimmer on your face, you've been doing it wrong. No person wants to end up with pubes in their mouth. It's time to get your own ball, hair, and body trimmer with Manscaped to make me time the best time and enhance your confidence with some nice, smooth boys. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code REMEMBER20 at manscaped.com. Your balls will thank you. That's a real thing that just happened, Mike. We actually have a sponsor on Remember This Crap. Who ever thought we'd see the day? I uh, I want to hear more about this lawnmower. <laughs> You're getting... Do you remember? Do you remember? It made me immediately remember some crap. Do you remember who, what cub was nicknamed the lawnmower and the convoluted way in which we arrived at that nickname? It's a nickname we gave a cub. Yeah, and, you know, we, 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 we 
handed out plenty of nicknames back in the uh, early aughts. The lawnmower. So, some of them were hilarious. I don't remember but, the lawnmower. So now, this is actually would be, without me explaining why we called Carlos Sobrano the lawnmower, it would sound racist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is not this is not the racist cub fan t-shirt. Ian mows my lawn. And at least in the laboratory of you know of the message board in which we arrived at that nickname, I, the, the thought never occurred to me. We were just being sort of ironic and sort of upstream because Carlos Zambrano was like a bull, and um, we sort of translated that back to be El Toro, but ah. we didn't feel that that was that was good enough. Because we felt he was a, such a goddamn machine right, he that he was like a Toro snowblower or yeah, or a, a lawnmower. And that, and honest to God, speaking for personal experience, that was always how I, I just, it all jibed with me that we kind of took this circuitous route to it. And I honestly didn't, it wasn't until uh, years later where I realized, oh, that might've been problematic, but it didn't. It honestly did not come from a problematic source. It was just sort of twisting this observation and sort of arriving at a you know a little bit of an obscurish nickname, and we all got to snicker with that. So, so, do you think that in 2021 we would get in trouble if if Corey Hart were playing for the Brewers and we continue to call him Midget Face? Would that we would, would absolutely we get in trouble for that? We would, yeah. We but. The insult could still be it. We would just have to rephrase it, right? He'd have to be like yes. little person face. Would that be more Maybe. acceptable? Maybe. Yeah, and that might not hold up too much either. Uh, I, I would say that when we had that discussion um, that, you know, my it was under the uh, the auspices of the 2009 season. So perfectly, um, you know, within the context of that. But I think a fresh conversation invoking that might, uh, you know, might uh, warrant some unwanted attention. We could also have just called him Squish Face, because really well, it just yeah. looked like somebody yeah, had squished his face. Right, right. It, like I guess one of those squish balls, like a stress reliever, maybe yeah. one of, like a, of a decent quality that wasn't just a, just like wasn't, a beanbag. But right, it wasn't. Like, it just wasn't snapping back into place. Right, it had that that sort of chemical, and then it sort of stayed smushed for a pretty good while, and only very slowly undid itself. So yeah, you know, that that would work. All right, so it is time to to spin the wheel of crap to see what we're going to talk about um, this week. Now, uh, two weeks ago, we did the 2009 Cubs, and so we cannot do the 2008 or the 2010 Cubs. I don't think anybody wants us to do the 2010 Cubs, so that's fine. Yep. Well, Um, we'll get to it some week, but not this week. So we are hoping for – we have not hit the 80s yet. No. The, that entire decade has eluded us. So I'm going to spin here in a second, and, and we'll take whatever we get. But we're really rooting for yep. sometime in yeah. the 80s. I just I want to bask in Manny Trio and <laughs> what the the last days of Jerry Morales. I just... No more the last days of the second coming of Jerry Morales, because there's a whole Jerry Morales as an all-star before our time in, like, 1977. And then he kind of journeyed through three Yeah, cities. like, I don't remember good Jerry Morales. I really don't remember good Manny Trump. Right. I was too young. Right. But both of those, we relied on stories from our older brothers, which we both had. Yes, if they were my brother fans. in particular loved Manny Trio. So. Well, and the, I, I instantly recall that my brothers, uh, the, the one thing that they would talk about with Jerry Morales – 
not the Jeremy Morales that I was watching that was the aging 34-year-old, but the one that was a sort of uh, sudden and surprising all-star one season was uh, his basket catch. It was Jerry Morales, always sort of, not that, you know, not that he was Willie Mays, but he was... He was more Willie Mays Hayes. <laughs> but he did make the basket catch. All right, here we go. We're going to spin the wheel of crap and see where we end up. Gonna get our wish. Oh, look at this! Good, with, we got, we got the second greatest year of the '80s, 1989. Hey, I'm putting my hands together, Andy. We've I got 32 years. I think what do we have? What eight playoff teams? Nine playoff teams? So the odds are one in four. That is for is historically awful as this franchise, or as awful as this franchise has been for 32 years. That goddamn it, we were due in our fifth episode to get a playoff team so yeah yes my that's be- it my beloved 1989 cubs all right so we always start with you five facts about the 1989 cubs playoff team of course first cub rookie of the year i want to say since ken hubs in 1962 and i'm just going to conjoin this so we can get moving on here but fact number three is that the cubs actually had the uh, and I've mentioned it before, but not only the rookie of the year, but the runner-up of the rookie of the year, uh, both key contributors to this aforementioned playoff team. Um, surprising, uh, effective. He was not the ace, but uh, surprising uh, contributor, uh, Mike Balecki, who um, not only was quite a horse for most of the season, but actually uh, performed pretty well in the series uh, in San Francisco and. Um, Number the fifth 1989 fact. I mean, there's just so many to choose from, but Les Lancaster is going to be known for a performance in the playoff game. But I'm going to reference the fact that at a game that I attended in July, Les and it was broadcast on ABC's Monday Night Baseball. Les yes. Lancaster ended it with a walk-off triple. If you can believe that, much to Al Michaels' delight, <laughs> he Al- wanted to go with the fuck home because <laughs> there is some some last calls about to be <laughs> announced around town. Who was the uh, opening day starter for the 1989 Cubs? Still Rick Sutcliffe. Yep. Um, fans might be surprised to learn that for all his success with the Cubs, where uh, he had won, I don't know, maybe close to 100 games, Greg Maddox actually only started one opening day. Sutcliffe, on the other hand, after arriving midseason 84, and even amidst seasons in which injuries limited his starts to fewer than 20, I want to say, in 86, started every opening day between 85 and I think 89 – was his last one, um, oddly enough. I think it was Balecki in 90, Danny Jackson in 91 before Maddox got his crack. But Sutcliffe was two years removed, coming into 89. We all know about Sutcliffe in 84. We haven't talked about that yet specifically, but uh, really a top pitcher. Um, what happened was uh, he, you know, after winning the Cy Young and leading the Cubs to the first postseason appearance in 39 years, uh, got injured the next year and then really struggled in 86 and bounced back in 87, the year that Dawson won the MVP. Sutcliffe was runner-up to Steve Bedrosian for Cy Young, one of the closest votings for Cy Young in years, and then really had a strong 88-89. I mean, he really had a good career at the Cubs, and, uh, and he was a contributor to that team as well. It, he proved to not be the ace six months after opening day when the playoffs rolled around. Yep. 
but he did take the ball on opening day, which, of course, we should probably just talk a little bit about that game because it was a pretty memorable opening day yes, for one a pretty of the, memorable One season. of the most famous opening days in Cub history, right up there with... Uh, for, for sure. Tuffy Rhodes. Tuffy and... Kosuke Fukudome. Who hit the walk-off in 69. Which, of course, here's the difference. In, in, Tuffy, in Tuffy's game and Kosuke's game, the Cubs lost. <laughs> <laughs> of the of the three maybe most memorable opening days, uh, the Cubs lost two of them, but well, they who, did not lose in '89. Was it was it Willie Smith who hit the walk off in '69? Yes, yes. I mean, we're going beyond our reach, but yeah. And there was, I think, Larry Bittner may have hit a, a oh. walk off in '77 or two eyes, two T's. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> walk off. Yeah, there is one more since we're on opening days or home openers at Wrigley opening day. Um, and he's in the news too, like Suckliff has been lately. Uh, but Tony Larusa, yeah. uh, actually former Cubs, scored uh, the winning run as a pinch runner, possibly for Ron Santo on opening day. I believe that's true. at Wrigley is seventy one, maybe seventy two. I don't think Larusa ever actually held a bat, so he was sort of like the Herb Washington of the uh, late. DeRocher era Cubs, but he did walk across home plate with the walk-off winning run. Somebody else drove him in. So, opening day. So, do you know, you, you knew that Suckliff was the opening day starter for the Cubs. Who do you think the opening day starter for the Phillies was in Would it 1989? Be like, I'm going to just throw something out. Don Carmen? It Kevin was, Gross? It was Floyd Yeomans. Oh, a part of the epic mid-80s trade that ye, uh, that landed Gary Carter at the Mets and helped propel them to a World Series. Yeomans uh, was a Mets prospect that got sent over with Mike Fitzgerald, Hubie Brooks, and Herm Winningham to the Expos and struggled. Um, and it was, you know, bottomed out. And I guess so, yeah, he was the he was with Philadelphia by 89 and their opening day starter, huh? Opening day starter, and it was a Yeomans effort. For Floyd, he went five, gave up nine hits and four runs. But yes, Which the game is, is most uh, I, it's it's most remembered. Um, probably not for Andre Dawson's home run, but rather or Sean Dunstan being caught stealing. I wouldn't have remembered that Dawson home run on opening day. I was you know we were in school, but because it was a day game at Wrigley, it was remembered for the Cubs um, taking a. They had a two-run lead going into the eighth. Phillies scored to make it five to four, and then it was a save chance for the for... newly acquired. Well, and guess who they scored the run on in the eighth? One who of my did the... one of my who... all-time favorite Cub relievers, a man who I believe sells real estate now, and I wouldn't buy it from him. Calvin Chiraldi. Oh, okay. So Chiraldi was still hanging around. On the, he was on the opening day roster, and it was only a second season. I mean, you'd he think he'd get. He went an inning and two thirds, and he gave up, and he gave up a a, a a run to tighten the game. I didn't. Did you remember this, Mitch? Mitch came in in the eighth. No, I did not. I did not. I always assumed he, he had came to in bail. The he had to bail okay. Calvin out. You know, I learned something today, and it's good to know another like pile another pile of you know, or shovel another pile of dirt onto the legacy of Calvin Chiraldi. That in yeah. some sense he almost got away with the fact that you know maybe Williams was, of course, back then it wasn't really unheard of to have a pitcher go more than an inning. Yeah, actually, he didn't have to really bail Calvin out. It uh, Zimmer just got a little uh, uh, antsy, twitchy. So, um, Calvin comes in. Uh, he pitched a perfect seventh. He got out Bob Dernier. 
back with the former Phillies. Cub, former Cub and once in f- present Philly. Yep. Tommy Herr. Former Cardinal. And Von Hayes. He got him out. One, two, three. Calvin's cruising. Um, Mike Schmidt leads off the eighth and does what he always did. He hit a home run. He did. Calvin gets okay. Chris James out. Kurt Ford. Oh, Chris James. Kurt Ford was a, is coming up. Kurt Ford. And Kurt Flood? No, not Kurt Flood. Kurt Ford. And uh, Zim's having none of it. He goes and he gets Mitch to make his debut with one out in the eighth. If I have any recollection of Kurt Ford, it says a St. Louis Cardinal, but that could be incorrect because I was joking about Kurt Flood. Yeah. All right. Um, All right. So Zimmer, whatever, is freaked out. Mitch gets Kurt to uh, hit a fly ball uh, to left for an out, and then we get the full Mitch Williams experience. In the ninth. In the eighth. There's two outs in the eighth, and Mitch is going to show us what we're in for. Uh, He walks Dickie Thon. Okay. Then he balks. Then he walks Ricky Jordan. Then, thankfully, former Cub Steve Lake comes up, and he flies out to left, so Mitch gets out of it. So if you thought he rode a tightrope in the ninth, he did it in the eighth, too. Interesting. Just for the hell did of not, it. Did not know that. So um, for those of you perhaps not in the know, this was Mitch Williams's debut as a Cub on opening day. Uh, he was the newly acquired. He was the big off-season acquisition. Uh, and just to, as because I do this every week, it just I like to put this in the historical context of the the overarching Tribune ownership. This is the first year that we've got that's in what I call Tribune One. So no more of that bullshit mediocrity by design. We're in this era of Tribune management that began in 1982 and with the hiring of Dallas Green and still continued even after Dallas Green was forced out, where they were largely. Um, still investing in the resources to make the team more competitive. It was the first full season of lights. So lights had finally arrived after the Cubs were the only team for 40 years that did not have lights and therefore had to play all 81 home games during the day. Um, even though it was probably more the function of the collusion that was going on, they did get a huge free agent signing in 87, which was Andre Dawson, who yeah. was still, you know, leaving the team in 89. But even earlier when Green uh, arrived, they made splashes that they had never made since that free agency had begun in the mid-70s. You know, bringing in names like, you know, Bill Campbell. They brought back Fergie Soup. Jenkins. It was still good. They, you know, uh, it was it was a new thing for us, and we had a lot of ups and downs between '84 and '89. There were two totally different teams. I give credit to Dallas Green for both teams. In '84, he built this team uh, around a whole bunch of you know aging veterans that all got together and took them to the brink of the pennant. '89. Uh, I still call this Dallas Green, too. I don't give credit to Jim Fry. Uh, Dallas Green had been forced out after two years, but the team that we're talking about right now and we're going to spend the next hour or so going into uh, are, are all hallmarks of what Green's work was as a sort of, a, you know, as a player development general manager. Um, and that's kind of where we're at. It was a couple of years before Tribune stepped in and said, you know, let's not get too crazy uh, with personnel. Uh, we didn't know all this at the time. Um, at the time we had had 84 under our belts and then some ups and downs and really no 500 seasons. And, uh, but what did happen just to circle it back with, with, you know, with, with 
Green being gone, he was replaced by his former manager, Fry. Fry basically, and I've mentioned it before, drove the franchise into the dirt. Uh, he made bad trades. He made bad signings. He developed nobody. Uh, and one trade that he made actually did help them and gave us a lot of happiness in 89 in the short term. But it's when he traded uh, Rafael Palmero and Jamie Moyer and, of course, uh, Drew Hall. Uh, for a collection of Texas Rangers that included Paul Kilgus, Steve Wilson, um, and, um, of course, Mitch Williams, who was the centerpiece hey, of the deal. don't forget Curtis Wilkerson. Oh, I forgot the switch-hitting middle infielder. Yeah. Curtis Wilkerson. Not to be confused with another utility player who may or may not have had a couple big hits in 89, Domingo Ramos. All right, Cubs had... You know, uh, it's a it's a fun season, and I'm already enjoying the prospect of talking about it. But I just wanted to, you know, kind of set that in place that you know looked at from today's perspective. This was uh, you know Tribune one Dallas Green uh, is still the Dallas Green era, even though he'd been gone. And uh, and but anyway, Fry's acquisition, Jim Jim uh, Mitch Williams, who was known to be wild, um, comes in, and I'll let you finish off what. A lot of fans know, but some might. But after Williams pitches around trouble in the eighth. Well, the part of the lineup that Calvin Trolley had no problems with, uh, Mitch did. Bobby Dernier, single to center. Although, it's an interesting description. Fly ball to deep shortstop, second base. So it must have just been a bloop that got over the infield. Texas leaguer. Tommy Herr, line drive into the hole for a single. I believe looks like Sean must have gotten to it but didn't have a play. Vaughn Hayes, single two shortstop. Same thing. Ground ball deep to the shortstop hole. So now the bases mm-hmm. are so loaded. Some fluky hits. And, okay. Bases are loaded with nobody out in a one-run game. And now he's got to face Michael Jack Schmidt. Yep. It's, all right. So, so yeah, even at, at, so at that time, imagine you're a Cubs fan o- older than us. You know, they didn't just hear about the legend of Mike Schmidt and as great as he was against everybody was even more particularly destructive of the Cubs. Uh, but there are people older than us who saw witnessed a lot of that damage. And so as on a Cubs fan psyche, you're optimistic like you are any year on opening day. You have a lead. You got your new reliever in and, you know, it's going sideways and here comes Schmidt. So you pretty much assume what's going to happen. Yeah, you Except- it's a it's it's a very it's going to be a grand slam. The Cubs are going to be immediately down what eight to five. Instead, Mitch strikes out Mike Schmidt on yeah. a on a two two pitch. It's going to be different. So here's Chris James, and he gets to a full count. By so the way, just get this out here, Chris James, huge Steve Stone tout from the mid eighties oh, by okay. this point. So just getting out there. Uh, so Mitch gets to a full count, so now he can walk in the tying run, but he strikes out Chris James. And then the great Mark Ryle. Ryle? R-Y-A-L. R-Y-A-L. And Mitch strikes him out. Dramatic. Strike I'm it, going to All three strikeouts swingings. I'm going to make a confession that I had always known it. And again, I was in high school. That day, and I, I probably, even though the Cubs were great, around 88, 89, I think I, I got a little bit distant just with, you know, you're at that age sometimes where you're occupied, you have a social life, you're busy with stuff, you know. So I don't like, hold on, but in my head, I always somehow had accepted it that Mitch walked the bases loaded. So I learned I did too. This is why I think that's, I, I think it's, that's apocryphal, right? He walked the bases the loaded and then Mandela struck the next effect. three guys out. 
that's what I've been telling people, just like with the same. Well, and if you so, just look at the box, he did have two walks. So you might think, well, but okay, in the eighth but inning, those were both okay. in the eighth inning. Yeah. So I'm glad we do this, that we actually do look it up because I'm happy to rectify, to, you know, edify myself there. Uh, I It changes things a little bit, but it certainly was easy to feed that myth about him being the wild thing because uh, he was wild. But uh, he wasn't really the victim. He was a victim of bad luck, man. Based on what you described, yeah, a Texas I mean, leaguer, and according, at least or either that or whoever wrote the hit descriptions for Baseball Reference was really maybe it's Mitch himself. He went in and rewrote it. No, no, that was a pop up. <laughs> that was a ground ball to Dunstan. That was another ground ball to Dunstan. So you and Mike Pusateri did a movie deep dive on Major League, which came out this year, right? Did it not come down out in 1989? Yes. So there were obvious. Ob- everyone knows about Ricky Vaughn, the wild thing, and there were obvious peril. And it, I mean, Mitch Williams' nickname that made its way into the lexicon, the baseball lexicon, also wild thing, which is obviously just lifted from you know the right, screenwriters of, the of Major League. But here's this funny story that I remember about '89, and it was kind of pointed out to me by my older sister that made this observation that uh, the movie was out in the summer because you said it was filmed in Milwaukee in like '88, really hot summer of '88, yep. I think. Uh, so it's out in '89. It came out in June, I think. And Mitch Williams, you know, by and we'll, you know, we're not doing this in chronological. We'll bounce back and forth. But in June or July, when it was clear the Cubs were having a decent season, Williams Williams did actually have a good season. Uh, he was a contributor that one year. Uh, I remember like a feature uh, that the Sun Times or one of the newspapers did on a Sunday, and uh, shows him he would go bowling and he bowled the same way that he pitched. He just like whips the ball; it's flying down uh, the lane at like sixty miles an hour. Well, they had like a little bio thing, right? And like, you know, name, nickname, hometown, favorite food, favorite movie, major league. And this is like my sister pointed out. It's like, it's kind of an infantile mindset. It's like the movie just came out. <laughs> it's like, his and because he the last movie he saw is his favorite movie. <laughs> well, and of course it's got this connection where, yeah. you know, he's kind of having a good season. So it's like any sort of like uh, critical sense gets put by the way. So yeah, that's my favorite movie. Well, and Gary Pressy, Played would play the song when Mitch was warming up, and Zimmer made him quit. He made him stop doing it. Is that right? Yes. Zimmer kind of a prick. Really? Um, yeah, he was. But I and, mean, how did he recognize Zimmer? Knew that into the Trogs classic wild thing. I guess I'm going to so. go I mean, in on a limb and say somebody told him. I don't yeah. think he was sitting there playing name that tune with uh, <laughs> Chuck Cottier in the dugout. That's, Right, one of the one of the few times, maybe, yeah. Well, Pressy took him. I'm sure, yeah. Jimmy, but looking yeah. at this, I've got a little issue with the way Zimmer managed this game. So he brings, he panics and brings Calvin. It's opening day. He's got the whole bullpen, and he brings his closer in with one out in the eighth, and it's a straight. He brings him in for Chiraldi. Mitch ends up hitting in the bottom of the eighth, but he was only the fifth hitter. It's not like they had this huge rally. He couldn't have double switched so that his so that his closer didn't hit. And then it's even weirder because he comes in with a runner on first and two outs. And actually, no, with two on and two outs. And he bunts. He grounds out pitcher. To, he bunts out pitcher to first base. To end the inning? To end the inning. Very Nephi Perez of him. Yes. Uh, especially considering that I do recall there was a game later in the year where Mitch Williams actually hit a, hit home, a home run. run. Yeah. With the Expos, I think. Now, Mitch had quite a year. So he uh, he hit a homer. Remember, also in Pittsburgh, he got hit in the head of the line drive. Yes, yeah, off the bat and, of Jeff King. And you remember what Zimmer did in the dugout? 
No. He threw up all over the dugout. <laughs> Maybe Zimmer swallowed his chew. Well, it was it was because, you know, Zimmer famously um he was the um he was the Ernie Pantuso in real life. Zimmer yes. got hit a lot. Yes. And Zimmer got hit in the head and a has tr- had a metal a tr- plate in his right. head because of it. Yes. Yes. And he had to yes. carry a card around when he went on airplanes because the metal detector was going to go off because he had a metal plate in his head. So when seeing, he had he'd lived it. And seeing Mitch yep. get hit made him barf. Yep. Okay. <laughs> and Mitch yeah. wanted to stay in the game. Now, Mitch, no Lynn McLaughlin, who did stay in the game after getting hit in the forehead with a line drive. Zimmer, wow. made, Zimmer made Mitch come out. But Mitch wanted to stay, and Mitch was trying to take warm-ups. He was facing okay. the wrong way, and he had his glove on the wrong <laughs> hand, but he was trying to do it. Yeah. So the thing about Mitch, the only reason he's on the team is because Fry had fucked up the Lee Smith yep. trade so bad. Yep, yep, yep. So he yep. makes it. He didn't like Lee because Lee, um, he, he thought Lee was lazy. Hall of Fame closer Lee Smith. Right, saved his Didn't ass. Didn't like the he... fact that he would sleep in the clubhouse until like the seventh inning and then come ambling down. Mm-hmm. Um, he had bad knees, wasn't going to be able to pitch much longer. I think he pitched like 15 yeah. more he years. He pitched as late as 1997, I believe. Um, and he made a terrible trade. He traded into yep. the Red Sox for Calvin Chiraldi, who had just blown, just been, just shit his pants all over the field in the World Series. One, in one year removed, but but the oh, point right. stands. Fish the Red Sox in 87, and then the Cubs got him for the 88 season, right? Yes. And then Al Nipper, who was... Yes. Useless. Just terrible. Yes. Yeah, and, and Al, I remember Al Nipper. We got Bob Nipper? No, no, no. We got yeah. Al, Al Nipper. Bob so, Nipper was a pretty so good... So that's a terrible trade. So a year after trading Lee Smith, they need a closer again. This time yep. it cost them... He starts poaching Dallas Green's farm system. That he this inherited. time it cost him an all-star left fielder who almost won the batting title. Yep. Now, there's other, at least there's urban myth reasons as to why Rafael Palmero uh, was traded. Dude, it doesn't matter. I, I haven't looked at his. If you look at it, Rafael Palmero's 1988 Cup season, it's probably a pretty impressive season for a 90% play. Because he didn't play like, he didn't get like 560 at-bats. But he was pretty young. He was kind of playing out of position. All left field just means that you're not good enough to, you know, beat out Grace at first. Wow. He turned out to be a good glove man himself. Yeah. I think the Cubs literally had two Gold Glove first basemen on the same team. Yeah, and I know yeah. Palmero won it with the Orioles one year where he didn't play first base, but I, he won it other years. And actually, I think it's the it. fact that Palmero became a power hitter, where maybe the mitigating factor when you look at how the Cubs kept Grace uh, and didn't keep Palmero. You know, I don't really get into. That so much is, I mean, Grace was, you know, fine. It really wasn't about, you could have had Palmero on left. I mean. They should have had Palmero on left. Oh, I mean. I mean, if if Roger Dorn and and, uh, Ricky Vaughn can put their troubles behind them, so could Ryan Sandberg, (laughs) Rafael Palmero, and Dave Martinez. You could have had them all. You could have kept them all. I'm sorry. I don't know what you're talking about. Let, Let me, let me. Put on this corn cob T-shirt. <laughs> yeah. That, um, yeah. There's that. Which you know, regardless of the circumstances under which Fry, you know, felt compelled to deal Palmero, uh, it still seems like a loser's move to get what he got for him, even at the it time. Was terrible. Yes, he he made a bad trade, and then because it, then he had to chase it. It was like being in Vegas and making a bad bet, and then having to chase it with another. Right. Bad bet. Well, I I guess to be fair, the trading trading Palmero was after. 
but it, it actually kind of makes it worse in a sense that he was he used you know whatever was going on to trade Palmero to make up for for the worst deal. I mean, so what do they get out of that? They give up, and we talked about how they also traded Moyer, but that's a little disingenuous to criticize Fry for that because it took Moyer yeah, about a decade. Yes. Before, but it is funny if you want to be a little bit disingenuous and really pile on Jim Fry, you could say dealt a pitcher that won 250 games in a, in a you can't say Hall of Famers in either case, but uh, you know, guy who, he Palmero ended up hitting 500 homers, right? 500 homers, yeah. and he had 3,000 hits. Which, yeah, I yeah. mean, he's a, no. he's a superstar, right? And right. if he comes back, he, he turned down a trade to the 2003 Cubs because he wanted to stay in Texas. And the Rangers were telling him, we're not bringing you back next year. And he didn't believe them. So he turned down the trade to stay in Texas, and then they didn't bring him back. Um, and then it was off to Baltimore. If he comes to the Cubs in 03, maybe he never yeah. uh, he never gets into the – he met it was Baltimore where he met Miguel Tejada. And it would do the old that, B12 in the butt, which kept him out of the uh, – Well, if that's, if, that's, if that's true, then fuck him because he could have at least made things right. For once, hey, he turned it down, and the Cubs had learned from the Fred McGriff thing that if a guy doesn't really want to come, go just move on. Yeah. The Cubs instead got Randall Simon, yes. who hit one of the uh, biggest home runs in Cup playoff history, and he hit a few big hits down the stretch too. So we'll get into 2003. Oh, we could do a whole thing on Randall Simon and going to jail in Milwaukee mm. and all kinds of stuff. That's right. So who was the That's opening right. day center fielder for the Cubs? So the opening day center fielder was the aforementioned rookie of the year. I have not mentioned him by name. I'm going to do it now. Jerome Walton, who did two incredible things. He did not win the gold glove. On an earlier podcast, I suggested that he had that year. He made an error in that game. So if you look at that box score, there should be an error by Jerome Walton. And then he didn't make another error in center field for like three months. But then the, the more impressive thing that Jerome Walton did in 1989 as a rookie is he had a 30-game hitting streak, yeah. which, you know, think about that, kids. I mean, regard, whatever you think about, you know, the, the luck of base hits, you know, whatever, bloops, uh, Texas leaguers, seeing eye singles, whatever. Doing that, doing that once uh, a game for 30 games is kind of unheard of, right? I don't know. In our lifetime, that might be the longest Cubs hitting streak, right? Um, it just is a hot hitter as a rookie as our center fielder. It's funny to talk about it now. Cause it's like, if you didn't know about Jerome Walton, you're like, well, did he die in a plane crash <laughs> after the season? Did he, no, he just, you know, uh, it's not that, uh, original of a story. I think he just, after that season, he got sent and, you know, and there might've been other factors, of course, that we don't know about, but you know, looked a little heavier in the, in the subsequent spring training and he, you know, was out of the league soon it happens. But in that season, man, think about that. I mean, we, that's, we had a hell of a player there. Yeah. And I, for some reason had forgotten that he was there on opening day because what I remembered was the Cubs had an early season uh, rash of injuries in the outfield, which necessitated the call up of Dwight Smith to take over. Uh, left field from Mitch Webster, who the Cubs had gotten for Dave Martinez for this roughly the same reason why Rafael Palmero had been traded. Correct. And Lloyd McClendon, Gary's that was the, very own, came up to try right. to share some outfield time because Andre Dawson was also hurt. Yeah. Yeah. So and, in my mind, we, it was always at the, the start of the, I guess in my mind, I had Mitch in center field and thought that the outfield got wiped out. And they ended mm -hmm. up having to bring up Jerome and Dwight and Lloyd, but really 
uh, Jerome that's, made the team out of. Yep, uh, that's not unreasonable because Mitch Webster was a center fielder with Montreal, and he played. I mean, he when he was traded for Dave Martinez, there was a center fielder for center fielder, so it's not a bad deal having him, you know, in left. Um, you know, McClendon was the. That's one of the few Jim Fry acquisitions that he fell ass backwards and that worked out. Um, but you're right when, when you look at, you know, he. Uh, he, we get the short-term benefit of Mitch Williams at pitcher and the short-term benefit of Dwight Smith, as it turns out in left, but probably would have been better off if, you know, we had that mustachioed Cuban playing yeah. there, but I don't want to, I don't, I also don't want to degrade Dwight Smith because he, he was the runner up. To I love Dwight Jerome Smith. Wall for a good year. I never, yeah, under, me too. I never understand why Dwight, um, I mean, Dwight had a good long career, but he was mostly a part-time player. And then he recessed in the Braves as basically a pinch hitter. And he stuck around yeah. for a long time with the Braves. My uh, take is that he uh, it was just a great outfield. pure, terrible outfield, terrible base runner, great left-handed hitter. Maybe it's, he struggled against left-handed pitching. You know, that eventually that's going to isolate you. If you can't play in the field, you can't really be an asset on the bases. You can't hit right, you know, lefties. Doesn't matter how well you can hit righties, you're, you're going to be a pinch hitter. That's what he was. But he's, he had a sweet swing. I know we've talked about it before. And a sweet voice because it's kind of cool. Kind of like coming from outside. I'm 17 years old in 1989, and I'm like, turn on the game. I'm like, wait, is that Dwight Smith singing the national anthem? Like, he's in full uniform, and he's belting it out and getting an ovation. And then he puts on his cap and goes out to uh, you know left field, which is always kind of cool. Okay, so you ask if Jerome, if that's the longest Cub hitting streak of our lifetime. The answer is mm-hmm. it just depends on how old you are. <laughs> uh, because Bill Dolan, no relation. 1900s, right? Had a 42-game hitting streak in 1894. Okay. That was, um, was that years. at the time the longest hitting streak in baseball history, a very short baseball history? Uh, what was the number? 42 games. I'm sure Bill Dolan's name was in the news when Pete Rose Pete Rose had a 44 game hitting streak. So I'm sure Bill Dolan's name was dug up from the grave in 1977 when Rose had a 44 game hitting streak. Okay, so at the time uh, Dolan had the he had the longest hitting streak. It was the longest hitting streak in baseball, um, baseball history in 1894. But it only lasted for two years when we Willie Keeler. Of the ah. Orioles had a 45 gamer, got him by one game, son of a bitch. Dolan's okay. hitting streak is the fourth to this day is the fourth longest in baseball history. That's a great fact that that it's the fourth for over 120 years, and yet it only stood for two years itself. And Pete Rose doesn't hold the record for the longest, at least according to this, in the National League because. Well, I guess I suppose the National League in 1896 was not the National League in 1870 no. because the Orioles at that point were not the Orioles that they are Correct. now. They're not because those are the old St. Louis Browns. Um, uh, wait, yes, the 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 current Orioles. So were the, the old original St. Orioles were just their own thing, and they must have gone kaput. They did. They're, and they were a legendary team in the 1890s, not to get all old-timey, but aside from uh, Wee Willie Keeler, uh, they also had John McGraw, who was a great player. And, oh, shit, there's a third player that I think even, you know, casual fans might recognize, and it's, it's slipping me. But they won, I think, three or four pennants. They didn't play a World Series then, but they won, like, three. They were, they were like, the dominant team before the, the Frank Chance Cubs, really. But Jerome Walton, that's the second longest hitting streak in Cub history. 
And it wow. is, he is tied for the 37th longest in baseball history. And he is tied with some, uh, he's got a pretty good company with a 30-game hitting streak. Some of the other guys, uh, Tris Speaker, Charlie Grimm, Stan Musial, George Brett, Nomar Garciaparra, wow. Eric Davis, Albert Pujols, Moises Salou, Ryan Zimmerman, Freddie Freeman. And there's more. It's more than 50% Hall of Famers. Uh, they're all recognizable to any modern fan. Well, there's some other guys, too. Like, all uh, above-average players. Walton's the only one on that list. Willie that Tavares is on there. Is Willie oh, a future Hall of Famer? What was I going to say? No, uh, but he wasn't even an above-average player. He's I like thought, the only one. Him and Jerome are really the only ones. Goose that Gosling. Didn't have above, that did not have above-average careers. I don't know right? who Lance Richborg was from the Boston Braves of the 20s. Okay. Um, yeah, right. it's a really good list. Yeah. Um, wow. Dan Ugla, 19th longest hitting streak in baseball history. 33 games with the Braves. I can't remember that. Um, Luis Castillo, the 11th longest in history with the Marlins in 2002. What was it? It was 35 games. And Ugla, you said, it was 33? Yeah. The Marlins have had two. Benito Santiago. Had a 34-game hitting streak. That was the rookie record, right? That 1987. That, um, oh, really? So Walt didn't even set the rookie mark because Santiago did it th- two years earlier? It seems like that's right. Santiago was the rookie of the year in 87. Okay, that's the year he had the hitting streak. So, so Jerome didn't even set the rookie record with a 30 That's incredible. Streak. He set the 37 longest hitting streak in baseball history, and you don't even get the rookie record for it. You don't even get the National oh. League rookie record for it. You get bupkis. You get bull. You get nothing. Well, you get the Cub franchise record for rookie or not. No, that's interesting. That's fine. You used to do the runner-up. Well, I guess the Cub. Because oh, uh, what were they? I'm were, sorry. You said Dolan. Dolan is the record holder at forty. Forty-two. You said forty-two. Yeah. 42. I'm sorry. I'm and pretty sure. Second? I think Matt Duffy is going to make a run at it this year for the Cubs. Is he got a streak going on right now? Did he just hit hit one out uh, in the ninth or something. Yeah, I mean, he's like a two. <laughs> He's knocking on the door. Now, there was a whole thing. Now, this is we're completely off the rails, but there was a thing, and I noticed on here, supposedly, you know, uh, uh, Faye Vincent uh, was in the news again the other day because um, Madison Bumgarner did not get a no-hitter for throwing seven no-hit innings in a seven-inning doubleheader game because yep. Faye Vincent with the Baseball Statistical Fairness Committee or whatever in the 90s, Decreed it has to. You have to pitch nine innings. Even Andy right. Hawkins lost his right because and, and he lost not, an, he because he lost a no hitter on the road, so he didn't get to pitch the ninth inning. Not to mention David Palmer's five inning. Not not Jim Palmer, but Expo David Palmer had a five inning perfect game in 1984 that got wiped out. Uh, but also, they in baseball hitting streaks do not cross over from one season to another. That's bullshit. So if you start. If you hit in 55 in a row and the season season. ends, (laughs) technically your hitting streak ends. But here's the weird thing about it. We Willie Keeler, his hitting streak on here, 1896 and 1897. Interesting. So there you go. All right. But interesting. Suppose we got to get back to the 89 Cubs. No, I think we're in 89. Faye Vincent did become commissioner in 89. Because a couple weeks after the Cubs were eliminated from the playoffs, uh, Bart Giamatti died. Bart Giamatti had been the commissioner. Faye Vincent, Faye Vincent was, in fact, the National League president in 1989. Yeah, so not that, completely. And then that around. allowed Pete Rose to lie forever 
Correct. That because was, Giamatti, that he had a secret deal with Bart that he was going to be let. Uh, yes. He was going to be reinstated, and, and everybody knew that was. Bad. And we'll and we'll just tie this up because at least where we are in that year doesn't pertain to the Cubs. But Giamatti died two months after banning Pete Rose from the game in '89. Pete Rose was still the player manager of the Cubs when the '89 season opened. Uh, his first game as a player manager of the Cubs was in June or July of '84 against against the Cubs, as it turned out. Um, which was kind of an odd thing for us to see that we heard about player managers. Don Kessinger had been the most recent one, and there had been none since. Uh, Lou Boudreau famously took the Indians all the way to the World Series in 48, Frank Chance, also with the Cubs. But uh, Rose was actually their manager for like four years. He wasn't terrible. The Reds were sort of like the 1990s Cubs. They were like, you know, middling. Um, but, of course, a year after Rose got uh, banned from the game, future Cub manager Lou Pinella took them all the way to the World Series. But, yeah, Rose was uh, – was, and he, he was technically player manager, but he was, wasn't getting many at bats by 89. How close do you think we are for the Cubs currently having a player manager? Considering that Tony Walters is their backup catcher and he might be the worst player in baseball. Don't you think Ross is over there like, fuck it. I'll just just keep the shin guards in the corner. If if, if Wilson gets hurt, I'll come in. I wonder what, what procedural moves they would have to make just to make. That would be awesome. Yeah, they'd have to put him on the 40 man. Yeah, I think that's the only thing that kept him from from activating himself as the twenty seventh man for the doubleheader yesterday. Yeah, I mean, you know, David, I'm sure he's better than he was when he was one of the worst hitting catchers at thirty seven a few years. Why not? Give it a shot. Can't be any worse than Tony Walters. Tony Walters is terrible. Speaking of Cub yeah. catchers, uh, one of my favorite Cub catchers of all time was an eighty nine Cub. Um, However, well. However, Joe Girardi his, or, or Rick Rona? No, the other Sorry. one. Oh, Damon Berryhill. Damon Berryhill. I loved Damon Berryhill. Uh, he another... was never really very good. But I, in my no, mind, you know, in my mind he was. Because he was a switch hitter. He was yes. a good defensive catcher. And he yes. always he had a really nice tan. In your defense, Damon Berryhill was injured a lot. He eventually got traded. Well, he or ended up with Atlanta. Tough, and that's bad for a catcher. And in fact, it's kind of a sad thing that he was not healthy for the 89 playoffs because his backup was Joe Girardi, and Joe Girardi was a fine backup type of a catcher. It's really what, what Girardi was. Barry Hill had the potential to be a good player. You are not off on that. That's another Dallas Green pick that could have worked out. Later on, after Barry Hill left the Cubs, he hit a three, big three-run homer in the 1992 World Series for the Braves uh, against the Blue Jays that won game one of the 92 World Series. He couldn't stay healthy. Nope. But you're not, you weren't necessarily being, you know, starry eyed and like overly optimistic. He was a legit prospect. I really believe that. The prop that one of the things that I regret about 89, there are many, um, not to, you know, in addition to Andre Dawson having his one injury wrecked season where he could hardly stand upright, um, was that Barry Hill was uh, not on the playoff roster. He was banged up. So Girardi got elevated to the starter. And then, of course, then they have to pick up Rick Rona. Who did actually deliver? Good old number I one. I don't know if you could find it. It's a game against the Mets. I was here. I was in the bleachers with my dad. I was seventeen, uh, May or June, early early summer, June of '89. A walk off victory. Zimmer, of course, called for his backup catcher Rick Rona because Barry Hill was probably already on the DL. It was a rare night game because in 1989, Cubs' first full season uh, with lights. They only played 18 night games. So it was still basically. Uh, a daytime stadium, but Rick Rona did deliver a walk-off suicide squeeze uh, against Ooh. the Mets in uh, early summer of '89, and uh, that had uh, that had them dancing in the in the streets of uh, Lakeview for sure. 
Um, that was early in the summer. That I mean, the Cubs. June, it was June the eighth. There you go. He yep, he he pitched in the he, he pinch hit in the tenth, and the game ended in the tenth. So it has to be what it is. Yeah. Um, so so Zimmer has his backup catcher call, which is pretty hilarious. Oh, do you another? You, I missed it. Did you say who he got? Who he uh, laid the bunt down against? Which which tough I'm, Mets reliever? I'm guessing was it uh, future Cub Randy Myers? It was Don Ossie. Oh, A A S E. Right. He who is the first player. Well, that will always be the first player probably listed in baseball almanac, right? Uh, Don Ossie was actually. Don it's, was, it's Hank Aaron. Oh shit! And then Tommy Aaron, sake. and then maybe Don Ossie. Uh, <laughs> excuse probably then. Excuse Don Ossie. me with your obscure reference to yeah, some guy. I don't what, know if you've ever heard of him. Whoever, Hank whoever this, Aaron. Here's uh, Aaron. this yeah. is perfect timing because uh, Dusty wants to come in and tell a uh, 44 minutes of <laughs> Hank Aaron story. Dusty, are you ready? Yeah. Yeah, Andy, I'm gonna need to see a source on this Hank Aaron fellow. <laughs> yeah, he played in the big leagues for uh, 25 years, I, something like that. I to- I totally whiffed on that one. I'm actually amazed Don Ossie was still pitching. Don Ossie was one of those guys for us that you'd collect his baseball card and just fucking snort when you see his name because A A A S E. As a kid, that's... and he and then he also he was like a he was like a sh- what passed for like a short man. He wasn't really a closer. He was kind of like what Dick Tidrow was to Bruce Suter, but then somehow got a big contract to become the Baltimore Orioles closer. I want to say like 81 or 82 and kind of, you know, it didn't really live up to it, but good cheers to Don Ossie for still pitching in 89 uh, against the Cubs. But this was Zimmer calls his backup catcher for the suicide. I don't, there's no way we can track this game down. Cause I have no idea when in the year it happened or who it happened against or whether or not it's even apocryphal, but I kind of recall another point in the 89 season. This was like Don Zimmer, just going to the fucking blackjack table, just like, like just doing crazy shit, like splitting sixes and winning the hand. Oh, is this the, uh, hit, the hit and run with the bases loaded? Hit and run with the bases loaded. He did right? it twice. I mean, did he? Is and it right? worked both times. Mark, and I think young Mark Steve Grace, Stone said he'd never seen it, and and um, Zimmer did it twice, and it worked both times. That might be YouTube searchable, maybe one of them. Uh, I want to say one of them occurred with Grace batting, which I love because Grace, you know, uh, we talked about Grace in '92 that he was coming out of like a two-year morass when he was getting divorced and his career had plummeted. But on the other side of that, he was a very you know up-and-coming rookie. And every time and- he turned on the TV. Goodfellas would be on, and you just get pissed. And <laughs> right, throw a bottle of whiskey at the television. But in '88 and '89, and possibly into '90, uh, yeah, you know, hell of a player, young player, uh, perfect for the Cubs, and um, uh, and the fact that Zimmer would have trusted him to swing away on or, or do a hit and run with the bases loaded. It's you know, that's Zimmer pulled that shit. He, he was you know, kind of an anti-analytical manager, if, if that's a thing. Um, but he, you know, he did crazy shit and it worked in 89. That's kind of, that's kind of one of the storylines. That's what made it so such a fun the Cubs, season. They're the rally in the 10th. It's quite a, quite a, uh, cast of, uh, this, the, the June here. game against the Mets. <laughs> yeah. So Vance law led off against Don Ossie and popped out to the third baseman. Then Lloyd McLennan reached on an error by Jeff McKnight. Curtis Wilkerson single to left. Sean Dunstan came up. He was going to be the hero. He got hit by a pitch. Base and loaded. Mitch Williams was due up. And instead of having Mitch bunt, which he proved on opening day he couldn't, 
Rick Rona came in and got down the bunt, and the Cubs won. Nice. So it was yeah. ba- a bases loaded, um, suicide squeeze with one. Well, with one out, it doesn't really work with two. It's a little tough to get through. right, unless you're Neffy. But even that doesn't work. Yeah. And you were close. Randy Myers um, pitched the ninth, pitched part of the eighth and the ninth for the Mets in that game. Okay, I wouldn't have. I, I wasn't sure. He, it was his last year at the Mets because he was one of the nasty boys for the Reds the following season. Uh, in 1990. The other thing about 89 was the Cubs were playing the Mets again, and we'll get way more into this in 84, but when the Cubs came out of nowhere to compete for the division in 84, they were competing with the Mets, who also had been like miserable for five, six, seven, eight seasons, um, which of course instantly compelled all members of local media to uh, educate all of us on 1969. What I always found funny was that in spite of the fact that in 84, the Cubs just destroyed the Mets. In 89, even though the Mets had been in contention every year, between 80, the Mets actually had a very good team from year to year. They contended every year. They went all the way in 86. They won the division in 88 before the Dodgers knocked them out. 89 comes around, and the Cubs are you know randomly good again, and it was the Mets that they had to beat again, and they did beat them again, which you know I always kind of in my head was like, why were we still hearing about 1969, you know, because 10 it, years ago because it scarred a right entire like, generation of cubs so so even though the cubs completely just pounded the mets in 84 especially and then also held them off in 89 did nothing to sort of you know exercise those demons i, I guess that's too much to ask but the mets were the main competitors and so were the expos do you remember and I'm going to ask you, uh, do you remember anything about that Expos team in 89 or any deadline deals that they made that, um, well, both teams, actually both the Mets, both the Mets and Expos made deadline deals to run down the Cubs. And I don't know if the Cubs really made any. Oh, the Cubs. Uh, you don't think the Cubs made a deadline deal in 89? Yes. You don't remember Marvell Wynn and <laughs> Luis Salazar. That's right. Of course Meanwhile, they made a big deadline deal. Meanwhile, the Mets make a deal with future Cubs saboteur Andy McPhail in, 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 in Minnesota, who manages to take both Rick Aquilera and uh, Kevin Tappany, who would be his building blocks for his ill-gotten 91 World Series championship, and sent back Frank Viola oh, uh, yeah. to the Mets, who had won the World Series for the Twins in 87. Uh, Viola was a native New Yorker. Look, that was a big trade for the Mets. Now the Expos made a similar trade with the with the Mariners when they dealt Randy Johnson yeah, for Mark and other Langston. Now I have a brother-in-law, Andy. He's not Canadian. It's kind of a long story, but he grew up in Los Angeles. But he's Canadian by culture. His mom's Canadian. He's a hockey fan. He's like he's an Expos fan, right? Uh, so he's had his share of heartache, and what, he will always tell me this story. That when Mark Langston, Mark Langston apparently shit the tub for the X. He didn't maybe shit the tub, but he didn't lead them to the division. I remember that there was a big early August uh, series. The Cubs swept the Expos. They went into first place and they never looked back. I think Langston may have started one of those games. Mark Langston was a very good pitcher for the California Angels. Wait, or, oh no, I'm sorry. He was always he was always with the Mariners. I think he may have pitched for the Angels after later in his career. So he comes up with the Mariners. I, I want to say he's the AL Rookie Pitcher of the Year in '84 when teammate Alvin Davis is like the Offensive Rookie of the Year. He has a nice career in the obscurity of Seattle. Um, he shows up in Montreal to help them for their pennant push, and then he doesn't really do well. And then he leaves, and then he was interviewed later. And he complained about pitching in Montreal and said it was like pitching in a different country. 
My brother-in-law will always remind me of that. So it must be true because he obviously heard it at the time and so had here, to make it. This is interesting. Here's Mark Langston's number. He only pitched um, he pitched part of one season for the Expos. Then he went to the Angels. So he was a free agent. That was another part of what uh, killed uh, Expo fans because they traded Randy Johnson and they got um, 24 starts out of Mark Langston. Mm-hmm. He was 12 and nine. With a 2.39 ERA. Holy shit, he was actually very good. He so only gave up 138 hits and 176 innings. He struck out 175. Holy shit! Um, but he was, you know, and it's. But you think about how we thought of baseball back then. He was 12 and nine. Like, that wasn't any good. Right. He, was tw- he lost games. nine games. So it's like, well, if you look at his he numbers, didn't... he pitched his ass off, and that. But the Expos didn't win the games he started. It's his fault. Is the yeah, he, threw, he threw four shutouts for them. Jesus, six he was actually. Games. So I, I, I misremembered. I apologize, and I will now hold on to the. No, thing. I Mark absolutely believe. I'm awesome. sure that the. I'm sure the consensus was it. While well, that trip was a complete bust, right. well, it was okay, a bust right. because if you, it's result oriented. They didn't. They didn't make the playoffs, but it certainly doesn't look like they didn't make the playoffs because of Mark Langston. That's right. And then when the other guy you trade him for goes on to the Hall of Fame. Then it hurts uh, for yeah, years. And Langston leaves because he's, yeah. I think it's an extra insult that he, you know. So now the, uh, you talked about how you're not going to credit Jim Fry for building the. Uh, Outside of the Lloyd McClendon trade. Right. And you shouldn't. This was a team up. that was built. This is why the team was so much fun. Up until the 2015 Cubs. The 89 Cubs were the most fun team of my Absolutely, and, and we're came, I mean, '84 was great. I was a little kid, and I remember thinking, "Oh, the Cubs are good. Of course, they're good." Well, even by '89, uh-huh. I'd realized this shit doesn't happen very often. Yeah. Um, and it was a yeah, it was a crazy bunch of young players, and you thought, "Oh my god, the Cubs are going to be good for a long time with all this talent." Yeah. Um, but it was a team that was built in large part out of their own farm system, with some notable uh, exceptions. It was a farm system that was put together by Dallas Green and Gordon Goldsberry. Jim Fry yep. came in and within a few months kicked Goldsberry out the door and hired Dick Balderson to run the, uh, and then Al Goldis as his like right hand man. Dick didn't last very long. Al did. Uh, but you know, they had guys that they had, they had developed themselves like Barry Hill, Grace, yep. Dunstan, yep. Dwight Smith, Jerome Walton. Um, Girardi. I mean, he was a, yeah. not that good, but he was on the roster. Was Doug Desenzo played on the 89 Cubs. That, that, that's another draft pick. Yep. Darren Jackson. Yeah. Uh, you know, the since the, the, since the, since the, yeah, the, since the part and well, um, Pico, my favorite, Les Lancaster, Lester Lacknaster. Yep. The since departed, um, well, obviously Paul Merrill and Moyer also that, you know, that Fry got pennies on right, the dollar used, for. Right, used to get the other duds for his team. Yes, for this particular, yeah, it's a high price to pay. Yeah, they were loaded with, and then of course, Jerome, you didn't even mention Jerome Walton, Dwight Smith, Mark, or maybe you did, Mark Grace. I mean, Sandberg was actually a sort of a legacy green farm director pick for the Phillies that he made sure to pluck. So essentially also a Cubs farm you yeah, know, right. product. Well, certainly a Dallas yeah. Green product because he had had influence I, with the Phillies. And yeah. then, that's so, what I meant. But there are that's also right. guys that you trade for. When you trade for them that young, their development's not done. You do get to take credit 
Like yeah. Ryan Sandberg was not Ryan Sandberg when he came to the Cubs. Correct. He was a throw-in. He was he was not a hot prospect yeah, at the Cubs. I mean, yeah, they, he was a throw-in. You, 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 you he would get whatever you can. You do you move mountains to get Larry Boa when he's thirty. Well, yeah, years I mean, he, he was a throw-in to balance out the fact that Andre Ivan Jesus was still essentially kind of a youngish player, and Larry Boa was dying of osteoporosis. So, I mean, Larry Boa was thirty-six, and you know, yeah. Well, here have this other guy in case Boa, you know, dies of old age at the I mean, shortstop. Think about all, all these young studs. Dean Wilkins, Kevin Blankenship. Wait, I'm sorry. Dean Wilkins already mentioned on a podcast. I believe the Cubs got him for Steve Trout. All right. So, you know, originally a Yankee prospect. Uh, Mike Balecki, who I believe had pitched for the, they got him from the Pirates. It wasn't. And didn't uh, Balecki, I think the thing I remember about Balecki as a kid was that he pitched the, remember the Pirates used to have their AAA affiliate was in Hawaii. I do. And guys would get called up and be like, oh, good, I get to go to Pittsburgh. But Balecki had like an amazing year at, in Honolulu. And I remember I was reading that on his – because until you're in the big leagues long enough, your uh, baseball card will have some. Will have your minor league seasons yep. on it. And yep. his always had yep. Hawaii on it. And I was like, oh, I just thought that was like the most exotic Balecki thing I'd ever was, seen. Balecki was a top prospect of the Pirates. What I remember about him was that the Pirates were terrible in 84, 85. And, you know, in 85, though – I got to see Rick Sutcliffe hit his first home run in a non-playoff game uh, for the Cubs when he homered off a young Mike Balecki. But he was a really good prospect, and he was kind of one of those things where he tumbled around for a few years, and he put it together uh, for the Cubs. He was huge, obviously. 1984 uh, with uh, Hawaii. 19-3 with a 297 ERA. Oh, wow. Yeah, he was was a legit prospect. Yeah, Pirates had high hopes for Balecki. You know, organization was not in good shape then. Didn't work out. but eventually he proved that he was, you know, worth the hype, at least somewhat. And he also, uh, he had a pretty long career. He played pitch for the Braves for a long time. Um, he did. He may have actually pitched. Yeah, he may have found a kind of a, found his niche in their bullpen or something like that. So I guess that's maybe a Jim Fry pickup. I guess you got to give him credit for that. So do you, the Cubs traded for him on March 31st, 1988. For, From Pittsburgh? Mike Curtis, the nope. the Baltimore Colts linebacker. How did yeah. they do that? Now that's the kind. See, now that, that we should give Fry credit for that because that's a pretty good deal. You trade a guy you don't even control for a pitcher. pretty pretty savvy, Jim. Pretty savvy. He was that uh, he was traded away in uh, September twenty on September twenty ninth. Well, that's a that's weird. That's a super late trade. He got traded to the Braves with Damon Berryhill. For Yorkus Perez and Turk Wendell. Wendell, yes. I knew that at one point, and now I'm going to try to re-remember that. I Yorkus Perez was one of the many Perez yes, brothers. Right. Pasquale, Melito. Yep. Uh, there's another one that may have made it to the show. Yorkus made it to the show, I think. Yeah, Yorkus pitched for the Cubs. Yeah, he made. It. <laughs> he was not any good, but he pitched for the Cubs. I will. I will never not think of the Perez brothers, and we should save it for '84, but since it's crossed my mind and just point out that for some reason, and I don't know if it's because maybe they were in a race to snort the most cocaine in North America, but for whatever reason, my favorite player, Leon Durham, absolutely fucking owned Pasquale Perez. Um, maybe, maybe the numbers don't back it up. Maybe that's apocryphal. But I, won't, I won't look those up. 
there were there are times when yeah we'll, we can look it up in '84, but he just seemed like he murdered Pasquale Perez. Oh, I got it right here. Uh, he was uh, he was 11 for uh, 13 with nine home runs against. Uh, Is that no? He wasn't. No, he full of shit. But, but wouldn't it be something if he w- was? Wouldn't surprise me. And so, I don't know. Yeah. So go ahead. So the '89 Cubs, the boys of Zimmer. Mm-hmm. Um, they had some incredible games. They had the game against the Astros where they got down nine to nothing and came back and won yep. on the Dwight yep. Smith walk off. It was an amazing game. And that was rain delay that was a rain delay staple for many years. Yep. On WGN. You were gonna if when Harry got tired Harry and Steve got tired of yakking, it was time to turn on the big comeback against the Astros. An instant classic. I we talked about opening day. I remember being like doing school activities and missing it. And then I remember that Houston game was being my first day of the subsequent school year as a senior. Then, mm. uh, and I, it was the first. So I, I can just tell you it was late August. But yeah, and I don't know where Houston. Houston back then was not in the Cubs division, and they were probably not of much consequence. But was it? Yeah, not eight nine. You know, they jumped out to an eight well, nothing lead, was, nine nothing lead. It was the Jim Deshays Astros. I love Jim DeShay. They've still been there, and they had the cool yeah. white shoes and the yeah, uh, and you know, and they'd, been, they'd, been, they'd almost gone to the World Series just three short years before. Yes, with with former Cub Billy Hatcher leading the way, and also future uh, uh, future uh, uh, Chip Carey muse Craig Biggio had actually been up by eighty nine. He was in that game. He came up as a catcher. Um. But yeah, so not an opponent that was that critical, but just the game itself, where the Cubs are, blow, you know, getting blown out and they come back and that's that's a, that's one of the Dwight Smith games too. I know he had a, he had multiple big hits. I want to say, as he just rallied his way uh, to the runner-up award for Rookie of the Year. And but that but then we're leading up to a game that I think a lot of fans remember a couple weeks later is the sort of drizzly Saturday afternoon against the card. And what's funny, and I'll confess, Andy, again, I always associate the Mets for any younger viewers. It's kind of weird to think about now. I was ambivalent personally. I was ambivalent about the Cardinals only because the years in which the Cubs contended, it didn't seem like the Cardinals are really on their heels. I mean, 84, they were two years removed from a world championship and they were always not bad, but it was always the Mets. It was the Mets. They had to beat the Mets. But in '89, looking back, the Cardinals are actually in contention that yep. year. They, so I don't, I just don't remember that, that clearly. Well, but. that game was uh, September 9th. Right, it was a Saturday afternoon. Well, three oh five Saturday start, and the what was the day before the the Cubs had were, were a half game up on the Cardinals. Just a half game, yes. September 9th. So this was a big deal because the first place was in the balance. Um. And yeah, three the, weeks to go. Huge game. So everybody remembers um, how the game ends, which yep. is with uh, with one out, Andre Dawson draws a walk, and Luis Salazar, back when he was uh, still binocular, came up <laughs> and went the other way. He had he you know he was a he, even to that point he was still he was a fucking eighty four Padre. Like, yes, he Luis was. Salazar, yep. What an asshole. Super yep. utility guy, yep. who the Cubs had picked up, and he was gonna. He he, he kind of saved the Cubs' ass a little bit because uh, Vance Lars Vance Law was an accidental All Star in '88. He yep. just had a lucky hot year, and it was like, oh well, there's our good you know solid third baseman, and probably didn't recognize that Law was probably regressing in the last part of '88. So we just go in with no backup plan. '88 Salazar kind of bailed them out. He ended up just taking that job. So I even remember though he was old. 
so um, it was Saturday afternoon, and uh, Dad decided we were going to Saturday night mass. And you know, it was a big game. It's like, ah, why are we? Why the hell are we going? And he's like, we're just going to go. And we get back, and the game's still on because it's gone that's to the, gone that's to a, the that's 10th a, inning. That's a bonus. And so we walk in, and we're literally standing in the living room. And I can remember, um, you know, we see Dawson walk, and then we see Salazar hits one down the into the right field corner. And I don't know which bum Cardinal was chasing it around. Was Tom Brunanski a Cardinal by then? I don't think so. Um, he was. David, and he was. Maybe David, David Green? Looks like he, Tom, Ken he was. Daly was hitting in his spot. So John Morris, not Johnny Morris, oh. another football player. Boy, there's a lot of football in this podcast. John Morris was in right field, clanging the ball around. And so there's Dawson on, not on one knee, on no knees, Trying yeah. to score from first on this double as the crowd's going nuts, and my dad and I are standing in the living room windmilling Andre awesome. home, and he scores to win the game. But what awesome. people don't remember is that the Cubs were losing in the eighth, and Dan Quisenberry, oh, had come in to try to to try to tamp down the threat. Um, I'd forgotten that Dwight Smith had let off with a single. Up. Jose De Leon had started. Yeah, the of course, of course, Dwight Smith's going to hit Quisenberry. He's a submariner, and Dwight. Well, Smith no, Dwight Smith got a hit off of Jose De Leon, and oh, then, bad. Um, well, this is good. The uh, uh, the Cardinals bring in um, Frank DePino to pitch to Mark Grace. Those uh, two later on. Did they start a f- that was earlier, earlier in the year, right? They'd already had the fight. It was earlier in the season. Frank DePino was a former Cub by yes. then. Eighty six, eighty seven, eighty eight, somewhere in the fight. Apparently oh. those two didn't get along. Okay. Okay. So they were. They yeah. Were, Grace actually, were. Grace missed a, like five weeks. I think he missed a month uh, charging the mound and he got a good licking, I believe on DePino. Um, but yeah, kind of paid the price. Young Mark Grace went on the DL. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I heard his shoulder. Yeah. Um, so. Grace struck out against DePino. Ouch. Ouch. Oh, he had to be hurting at that point. Oh, man. Yeah. And uh, the quiz comes in to pitch to Andre Dawson. Andre grounds out to short, but Dwight Smith advances to second. And who comes up? Wait, Luis. he grounded. He, he must have hit a real bouncer. How did he not hit into a double play with those bad knees at that point? In the season? Uh, okay, wait. Had to hit a chop. I'm sorry. I don't mean to, that detail because I'm like, if you hit a grounder to short, that's well, a six. It says, oh, here we go. I missed a key. Oh, uh, I missed. I missed a key point here. Dwight stole second, but couldn't advance. Dwight to third singled because... and advanced to second on an error on the right fielder. Who oh, by John Morris. Yeah, I think you mentioned that. I think that. that point was still Brunanski. Oh, right, because we're in the eighth. Yeah. So Dwight's on second. So ground ball to short. I'm sure but, terrible but base came... running right in front of. Uh, well, not a good piece of hitting in fairness. To, you right know, in front of Ozzie Smith. He just take off for third. Dwight made yeah, it. Right. No, I can't blame Smith for that one. He, he made it to third? <laughs> he made it to third. Oh, so okay. he's the yeah, third, was, right? And who comes up? Luis Salazar. Okay, singles so to tie two, the game. So Luis tied it in the eighth, in and he won it yes. in the tenth. Okay, it's the Luis Salazar game. Really. Cubs won really the trade is. right at that moment. Um, one of my other favorite moments. There's no way in this podcast I'll be able to find exactly the date. I might be able to, but the to my mind the coolest double play I've ever seen. Do oh, you remember this? No. Keith Hernandez running at first base for uh, the Mets. And the batter hits a 
a pop, he hits a fly ball to left field. It's not a pop-up to shortstop. It's a fly ball to left field. And Dwight is doing his typical Dwight Smith thing, and he's very confused. Sean mm-hmm. Dunstan streaks out, catches the ball over his shoulder in in left field, not at shortstop, in left field, turns around, and on one hop, nails Hernandez trying to get back to the base. You can find that game because I've seen that I've seen that footage somewhere, and I think if you find the video, you can track it back to the game. So... That's yeah. I mean, so he's the only shortstop in 1989 who could have made that play because you had to before, have a ridiculous that's right. arm to get it to first base. Because it's <laughs> not like Hernandez had rounded second. He goes he goes a little yeah. more than halfway Casual and he turns around like oh shit and he's yeah. trying to get back yeah. to first and Sean yeah, will not let him speed, speeding past him. Uh, I'm just gonna before we maybe drill a little bit further on the tragedy that was Andre Dawson's 1989. Just want to say yeah, Dunstan had arrived somewhat. We, we had. He still didn't live up to the expectations, but after uh, several frustrating seasons, he was an all-star in 88, and he would become an all-star again in 90. Uh, I want to say he didn't have the greatest season in 89, but plays like you just described was like, just like with Jerome Walton center, it's like, wow, you know, I mean, hey, look, if you got a great center fielder and a great shortstop, usually, and they can hit, which they both did. Uh, you're off. You're off to uh, a good start. But Dunstan had a good year in eighty nine. Yeah, eighty nine, two seventy eight with three twenty on base, which for him pretty high. Didn't slow yeah, yeah. a lot. Four hundred three. He had nine homers, sixty RBIs, and he stole. Um, he stole nineteen bases in thirty attempts. Yikes! Well, <laughs> so that's back then. That's, that's not I, where he, he had an OPS he, plus of a hundred. So he it, offensive okay. was big average. Uh, yeah, it was a regression year, and he bounced back the next year. He was sort of in, the, in that period where he was really he was he's always an exciting player well, to watch, but. Sean kept having these seasons where he would either have a great first half or a great second half, and the other half would be terrible. Interesting. Um, Interesting. Let's see what he did that year. Uh, that year, he was, yeah, he had one of those years. Um, okay. Oh, yeah, the second yeah, he, half of the season, Sean Dunstan, 311, 337 on base, 401 slugging. Yeah. Um, with. I, I think 89 was here. I think 89 may have been the year he got off to such a horrible start that the Shawnometer was created. He was at 238 became, uh, at the All-Star break. You know, another he funny thing is... 78, so that's pretty good. We've gone... We're over an hour into this. We haven't even mentioned Sandberg, who was in his peak, and we've mentioned Ooh. him you know, in 92, 97. I, I'm sure he had a good season. I mean, he was, you know, for him, maybe not so great. Um, but Dawson's the one I want to talk about because... He was beloved by the fan base, and rightfully so. You know, he comes over in 87 for a team that, although was last place, was a team that was on the rise. Uh, they were last place, though, even though they were, you know, um, in contention, believe it or not, sort of in August. It was a weird season. Anyway, Dawson hit 49 homers, first year as a Cub, wins the MVP. Um, 80, he was just awesome. He, like, he had huge homers. He had ninth-inning homers. He had game-winning homers. He was he had a cannon for an arm, with apologies to uh, Frank Costanza. Hmm. He or, That's a rocket for an arm. Rocket. Sorry. He had a rocket for an arm, and he did, and he still did. And see, Dawson, of course, for those of you that don't know, he was a all-around center fielder for the Expos, but they had uh, artificial turf that was basically just you know painted concrete. Yep tore up his knees. He was like the Dan Hampton of, of, of baseball uh, in the 80s. Uh, and, and, you know, and because of the undervalued market in the late 80s due to collusion, he had to take an undermarket value and totally is worth it. So you can't necessarily give Dallas Green credit for that, but he was a big free agent signing. 88 was equally good. He was still really good in 90, 91. 
89, and I don't know what his season was. His, his season numbers may have been good, but it, it always felt to me like a sort of a tragic, uh, um, just a cruel fate that the one season in Andre Dawson's career as a Cub where the team itself made the playoffs was the season in which he just quite wasn't himself. And maybe he was during the season. I don't know. But in the playoffs, uh, his knees were shot, and it just felt like he came up. And, and we're, we're getting towards the end here. We need to talk about how the season ended. So, uh, and yeah, obviously, ahead. Andre had, uh, he had his MVP year in 87. He fought Anhorpe's 137 RBIs. And then he played 157 games in 88 and was an all-star. Jesus, Zimmer. But, Zimmer's first year. But wasn't uh, – it was a huge drop-off. He, hit, he only hit – in his MVP year, he hit um, – no, it's not that big a drop off. I take it back. His power dropped off. He only hit twenty four homers to seventy nine RBIs, but he hit three hundred three. Uh, Eighty nine was his injury was his most injury plagued year as a Cub. He only played one hundred eighteen games. He had twenty one homers, seventy seven RBIs, but he only hit two fifty two. Then in ninety and ninety one, he bounced back and he drove in a hundred runs both years. He had twenty seven homers in ninety and thirty one in ninety one. Okay, um, and he hit three ten in ninety and two seventy two. How old was he at that point? He was thirty five. And oh, he, had, he had 272 wow. and 91. Um, wow. Wow. So, yeah, that's it's it's terrible luck. He basically, uh, from 87 to 91, he had he had four really good years, two great ones, and one bad one. And the one bad one was the year the Cubs made the playoffs. Yeah. And so yeah. he was completely not healthy for the playoffs. He was not. And it just felt like, and I don't know what his numbers were, it doesn't matter. I just anecdotally... Um, they were all tight games. The Cubs were not outclassed. They lo- they lost four games to one. Um, and just just real quick, just to sort of bring it up to there, you know, the Cubs make the playoffs for the second time. So now we're like, you know, a lot of us are kids when they finally does when they finally do it in '84. So it happens a second, a little bit different. They do it in Montreal. It's a different team, as we said. It's a homegrown team by Green. It's not a bunch of veterans. Uh, they, you know, a game one is it's the nightmare of a start for Greg Maddox in his first postseason start. But they bounce back in great in game two and beat former Cub Rick Russell's brains in. And then there were just three really tight games yeah. in San Francisco. And it just felt like, you know, they were back and forth. They're great games. They're probably really good baseball. If you were sitting back and watching, you'd appreciate with all that's at stake. It was high stakes baseball. Both teams had nothing to be ashamed of, but they were tight. And because it was tight, like it just seemed like there were so many times that Dawson had come up and he, who knows, he may have delivered once or twice, but just like no, my memory is was... that every, every time he came up, it was a big situation and he just, and, and you weren't mad at him because well, did, you fucking knew what he was dealing with. He did drive in three runs, but he was two for 19 oh. with two walks and six strikeouts. And he had one double, no other extra base hits. It was just, just heartbreaking. Yeah. And it's, yeah, you're right. During that series, it felt like if they could get it back to Wrigley for six and seven, that they yeah. would win it. And they just couldn't get back. You know, San Francisco fucking started Scott Geralt in game one. And I remember thinking, like, Scott Geralt was like a middle of his reliever. He was a starter. You know, they, they had other guys. I mean, Russell had his renaissance and ended up kind of shoving it up the Cubs' hiney. I don't know how they did it. Roger Craig and his, you know, somehow popularizing the split-fingered fastball that Bruce Souter had already popularized. Hmm, baby. That was like their slow. Yeah, they threw a – well, and it was – they threw a split fingered fastball that they also uh, didn't. They didn't always use the L. Sometimes it was just the oh. spit fingered fastball. Yeah, there you go. Yes, 
I'll buy it. Yeah, this whole idea. It. And it was funny, though, because the split-fingered fastball, over time, the the pitchers who used it got hurt. Because, Blocked their elbows, even Suter. Right, because the, the apparently having your fingers like that puts stress on the ligament up your forearm, which yeah, puts extra yeah. stress on your elbow, and you don't even know it until all of a sudden you fucked up your arm. So I mean, Bruce Suter, I always, I always thought that Bruce Suter was the godfather of the split-fingered fastball, and he maybe maybe he was just superhuman where he got such a great career out of it, but when he was done, he was done. Like Atlanta Braves, you might remember, signed Suter yeah. like an eight, to a huge contract, but he couldn't even throw the ball anymore. So, yeah, that was Roger Craig's. Not the Roger Craig that was the black running back for the 49ers. Same town, different sport, different position. Roger Craig, uh, who I believe was on the 62 Mets team pitcher um ended up yeah out, out out managing don zimmer perhaps although i don't know how much we can blame zimmer for that series um they were no, but yeah they were no. they were all tight games they were all tight games i guess I should mention but that like he the pitched his ass off and, and they ended he up did losing his in game, game five and Bale- and Balecki outdid you know and russell game two the cubs pounded on russell russell comes back to wrigley field in the playoffs and gets pounded cubs even the series um but then the next three, I just met Robbie Thompson and Matt Williams. Both of those assholes had big home runs at like key points. And then, of course, we can't, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention Les Lancaster, who was very effective as a reliever. That's what you might, whatever constitutes a long reliever in 1989, um, who famously uh, lost track of the count, yep. didn't know the count, and pitching to Robbie Thompson. Thought it was, so he thought it was 3 and 0, right? And it was 2 and 0. And he threw, he threw thought, the fastball, and Robbie's like, that, "Hey, thank you." That, yeah, he wasn't yeah. he wasn't taking the automatic take on three and it, and it just like Robbie Thompson was one of those young, decent second basemen that I always hated because they felt like they were a threat to San, you know, being an heir to Sandberg's throne, and he proved not to be that much. But he was, you know, good for a couple of years, and he had big hits in that series. Got to hand it to him. Um, yeah, they, it like doesn't to, look like. Would you like to hear ahead. Mark Grace's? Uh, Stat line in the 1989 NLCS. I, I want you to tell me. I just wanted to know. I looked it up years ago, and I was actually surprised that he outproduced Will Clark because it felt like Will Clark was because he Will Clark traumatized us so much. It just felt like his numbers had to be better, but I don't think they were. I think Grace outperformed him. Mark Grace hit 647 with a 682 on base. He slugged <laughs> 1.118 for an OPS of 1.799. God he had three him. doubles, a triple, a homer, eight RBIs. He stole a base. He walked four times, and he struck out once. He was 11 Damn. for 17 in the five games. That's incredible. And, yeah, Will Holy Clark shit. was every bit as ridiculous. But I think most of Clark's damage was game one, and then, of course, when he almost took Williams' head off for the second time that season after Jeff King had done it earlier for Pittsburgh. Well, so we also have the uh, somewhat apocryphal. You know, now it's commonplace. You never don't see it when uh, – Pitchers are talking on the mound. They hold the glove yep. over their face. That's right. That was because Greg Maddox standing on the mound talking to uh, who was the pitching coach? Was it the great? Was it was that one of Bill uh, Connors' many stints? No, it, it was as, as Harry Carey might say, "Big Dick Pole fans." That's right, Dick Pole. How, how could you forget Big Dick Pole? <laughs> what did he say? Like fastball in? Uh, Will Clark just, saw him say it. All I know and is hit the yeah, first pitch off the freaking no, scoreboard. Dis, no discretion. Yeah, and that's—I don't think that's apocryphal. I think that's got to be the truth. Uh, Maddox, 
you know, Maddox uh, was nervous in his first half. Of course, Maddox proved that as great as he was over the course of a season, uh, and he had a few spectacular performances in the postseason, was not consistently that great. And we got a taste of that in 89 because both of his starts, even he started one of those three quote-unquote close games in San Fran. He got chased early. Cubs got got the team back in the game to make it close, but not a good series for, uh, for Greggy so, Boy. So Will Clark's uh, 1989 NLCS. He hit, they basically matched each other hit for hit. He was yeah, he hit, hit 650, so three points higher than Grace. 682 on base, 1.200 slugging for a 1.882 OPS, so just a little bit more than Grace. Yeah. Three doubles, a triple, two homers, and eight RBI. So one more homer and the same Because he was RBIs. more of a partner. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was it was ludicrous it, to watch those two. As I like to point out, the interse- the intersection less than two blocks uh, northwest of Wrigley Field was named after those two. There is an intersection, Clark and Grace, less than two blocks from the ballpark where uh, the Gingerbread Man used, or the Ginger Man used to be. It's now the G Man Tavern and the old Piano Man. Um, I like to tell people it was named for the two first basemen in the '89 NLCS. So the so the '89 Cubs won 93 games. How many players do you think on that team drove in a hundred runs? Well, you said uh, well, Dawson wasn't one of them. Um, Sandberg was a year before Sandberg had forty homers and hundred RBIs. Sandberg hit forty I homers. Say, yeah, I don't think Sandberg did it. I'd say none of them. None. They had none. They had um, wow. Grace had the most seventy nine. Dawson had Holy 70, shit, Dawson even, had seventy seven. Sandberg had seventy six. Dawson had six. They had a wow. lot of guys drive in a few. Interesting. Um, they had two guys hit three hundred. Um, was Dwight Smith one of them? Yes. Does Dwight that qualify? Smith. He because he was not an everyday, but and Grace was probably the other one. Yep. Dwight Smith and Mark Grace. Three guys had OPSs of eight hundred or higher. Can you name uh, all three? Sandberg. I'm sorry, it's four. It's four. Four guys. Got to name all four. Sandberg San- is one. Yes. Sandberg's one. He had a good year. He had 30 homers, 76 RBIs. Um, yeah. Hit 290. Made like five errors or something. Um, holy cow. Uh, was Dwight Smith another one? Yes. Dwight ah, Smith. Interesting. Ryan Sandberg. Would Grace have been? Well, I guess I, would Dawson have been one or no? Was, that was, Dawson I have did not. Dawson. 783. Okay. Did Grace have an 800 OPS that year? 862, he led the team. Holy shit. No, sorry, Dwight Smith led the team if he had enough at bats. Wow. And then one more. Uh, is it McClendon? Cloyd McClendon. Nice. 847. Lloyd McClendon so McCl- hit in 92 games. Lloyd hit 286 yep. with a 368 on base, 479 slug. He hit 12 homers and 40 RBIs. He struck out 31 times, but he walked 37 times. Lloyd was fun. He... he- Basically, was in a platoon with Dwight Smith in left field, little fire plug of a guy, and he had a lot of big hits. He was fun. I don't know how much him longer he's still. They listed him at utility in the thing because he played so many. Because he was, he was, a, he could be your, he could be your emergency. He may have, yeah, come into the infield. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, he played. He sense. played left field, first base, third base, third base, and catcher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know how long McClendon was around, but they got they got the best out of Lloyd McClendon. Um. They got the best out of Mike Balecki. Floyd was around for a season and a half. Nin- yeah. 1990, he played 49 games for the Cubs and then went to the Pirates. Um, 
Yeah, and I'm sure he was busy telling a lot of very exciting uh, Little League World Series stories on the bench. Right. <laughs> yeah. Let's look at the pitchers here. Yeah, and, and, and while you're looking up the pitchers, I mean, you you mentioned the term Boys of Zimmer. I know that – I don't know if it's on YouTube, but there, there, there was like a sort of a season-ending video that they made which kind of encapsulates all of it. You could find it. I think we've covered a lot of the, you know, significant games. Um you know, when they took the uh, the, yeah, the voice of summer is fun. You can it's on. You can find it on YouTube. It's broken into like four parts. Uh, it is a lot of fun. You get Wayne Mesmer is the, is the Wayne uh, Mesmer sing uh, trivia here. Uh, sing uh, the Star Spangled Banner before Game Two of the NLCS before the Cubs clubbed former teammate Rick Russell. Do you know who sang t- uh, Star Spangled Banner before Game One? Uh, it wasn't Jimmy Buffett because he sang it before game Holy one. Holy cow! No, it was Jimmy Buffett. I thought Jimmy Buffett sang in '84 because he was buddies with Steve Goodman, and he was Steve Goodman was dead. Goodman. He do it again? Yeah. No, he was dead, and Steve Goodman was the reason. Well, that he's Jimmy still Buffett... dead. Steve Goodman. Well, he right. was dead in 1984 too. I don't. Yeah, no. I we could. I don't know if we could find that. I, I don't know who would have sang it in '84. I know he. I know Buffett was a much more, was a little more popular in '89 and more recognized with the Cubs in '89. Well, I'm willing to uh, concede that. We'll have to maybe uh, take that up because I always thought Mesmer definitely sang one of you, and you just mentioned that, right? Or um, well, you mentioned what, that he did the. Um, Right, well, you introduced saying, he, he, he emceed the, or he's the. Um, oh, that's he's right. He's the narrator the of the video. Yeah, right, right, right. That's right. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll 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 review the Jimmy. Time we ask you, you please rise and join in the singing of our national anthem, as sung by the popular recording star. Oh, you're fucking right, man. Jimmy Buffett. That's 1984. Yep. This is for Steve Goodman. Oh man. You know what? I think he did it again in 89 then. Oh, why not? I think I, right. Why not? He was no less popular. Holy shit. Look at Jimmy. Yeah. No, that's all right, though. If you guys, if for those of you listening just heard those first few bars, you can go YouTube. That's uh, not the Jimmy Buffett you, you think of. That's 1984 Jimmy Buffett. Uh, I think I think he sang it in 89 also then. I think we both we might both be. right. I, I did not know that he did it in 84. So and that's I, a nice touch. 89 had the. Um, the great, the open before game one, the Vin Scully. Yes, that should um, be mentioned. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. That would not be on YouTube except for our buddy Chuck Gittles tracked it down. And Excellent. Kudos to Chuck. So I will try to, I will, I can find it somewhere. Chuck has it stashed. Both, uh, both the 84 and 89 NLCS opened at Wrigley because back then it was preordained that, uh, you know, that the one division would have it, but it was also preordained which network would have it. So in 84 is ABC with, with uh, Don Drysdale, Earl Weaver and Reggie Jackson. But in 89, we got the Vince Scully treat because Vince Scully would have done the world series in 84 and in 89, it would have gone to ABC. Uh, but because it fell in 89, we got NBC and yeah, we got the Vince Scully treatment and that is an epic uh, introduction because Wrigley, you know, just had had lights, but as we know, it was as beautiful as ever. Again, first tour had been installed in '89, and but yeah, look it up, kids. Vince Scully, uh, 1989 NLCS monologue. Now, so do you know how the Cubs losing in the NLCS saved countless lives? 
Yes, I do. I do because shortly after the World Series began, there of course was the epic. So the, the theory has always been that Game Three of the World Series, because it was it was in San Francisco, it would have been at Wrigley. Had the Cubs had the Cubs won the pennant, the A's would have been playing at Wrigley. Instead, it was in it was in San Francisco, and because it was on NBC, it was an early afternoon start out on the West Coast, because 7 o'clock was like On the West Coast, it's still technically a night game, because I believe the last day game in the World Series was 1984. Well, right. But, but okay. you know, it's okay. you got to start, it's in prime time, so it's 5 yes, o'clock. So prime time. all yep. the people that would have been on the freeways, the freeways were much less congested in San Francisco because there was a World Series game going on. People were either hoofed at home or went out, and then they had the earthquake. Oh, you're the, saying the, the Bay Bridge collapsed and killed people, but they've always said that there you're would have been four people, or five times more cars on the bridge had it been a normal rush. Because out. a lot of commuters were staying off because of the traffic, but most of the people uh, creating traffic to go to the game were already at the game. Is, is that what you're saying? Either that or you got home because you wanted to watch. You were either an Ace oh, or a I'm Giants sorry. fan. That's right. That's right. So the whole thought has been that um, – the Cubs, it was the Cubs' uh, selfless sacrifice saved yes. many lives out in the yes. Bay Area. I hope you're happy, Tony Larusa. That's the only World Series you fucking won with the A's. I don't think I he's going to win one this year either. No, and I'm still angry about the two that he won in St. Louis. They both seem ill-gotten, but we can talk about those some other time. I've never, I've never seen them, so I don't even know that they happened. I know you're lucky. It was a good move. I have good seen move. the highlight of Nelson Cruz. Um, not catching what should have been the last out. Of the still, ang- still angers me that he just played off the wall. He, he he went halfway between going all out and just not being smart. Like Lance Berkman's going to score from first. Come on. Yeah, it's also very much. Um, it's like having it's it's having Bill Buckner in for the final out. You know what the fuck is Ron Washington doing? Having, True. Still having Nelson Cruz in right field when all you have to Be- do is get three outs and you win the World Series. What is in Ron Washington Takes the worst doing- outfielder in the American League off the fucking field, Ron. Of course, right. we know what Ron was doing. Yeah, yeah, he's doing. We just don't know when he was doing. It. Of, yeah, vertical lines of horizontal lines. I'm sorry, of white powder. So, all right. So uh, let's see. We cover eighty nine. What do we, what we got? Good. I want to do uh, take a quick look here at their. And I'm searching in my brain for any other games. I mean, I mentioned Les Lancaster's walk-off triple. That was a weird game that I was at. We already mentioned that. Nothing else to discuss there. Uh, taking the lead on the Expos, beating the Cardinals, beating the Mets, Rickles walk-off bunt. Uh, let's see. The Cubs were in first place in 1989 for 111 days. Well, less than four months. The biggest lead they had was at the end of the year, six the six game. Um, wow, I don't I don't remember being that tight, but that's the, pretty cool. They were three and a half games out on July twenty sixth. Okay, they were in it no matter what all year. They won seven in a row from April seventh to the sixteenth. That was their longest winning streak. They lost seven in a row from June twenty third to the 29th. Oh, June soon. Um, People were talking. They got shut out twelve times but they also pitched 10 shutoffs. They had eight walk-off wins, and they had seven walk-off losses. Um, they went 18-9 nine, nine. in July. That okay. was their best month. By the way, I wanted to mention, too, that when Mike Schmidt struck out in the ninth inning against Mitch Williams, I think he, that was the point where he realized that he'd homered earlier in the game. 
he had numerous back-breaking homers and huge home runs for 15 years. And that when he struck out in that situation, that was the beginning of the end because it was Memorial Day weekend uh, of that season. Six week, a mere six weeks later, where uh, Mike Schmidt just stood up in front of uh, the press gaggle and and just bellowed about, "I left Ohio with two bad knees." I'm sorry to pile on Mike Schmidt, but he caused a lot of anguish. And he it was kind of an ass in his post-career. He's one of those Mitch, guys. Mitch humiliated him and ended his career. That's what you're saying? Yes, yes. and Because he, he was also one of those guys, I think, sort of passive-aggressively was fueled the sort of Ron Santo. And I think partly because Schmidt liked the fact that third base was an underrepresented category. He, he and Brett and then, you know, Eddie Man, whatever. So, yeah, in addition to being a Cub killer, um, I just I have my suspicions about Mike Schmidt, so I want to mock him uh, to the day I die for his uh, just blubbering retirement. So press it's very, it's very clear from looking at this that the uh, 1989 they were the attendance was still based on people through the turnstile, not tickets sold. So opening day they had 33,361, as expected. The uh, old style opener they had 18,674, <laughs> and then for the third game of the season, 6,364. <laughs> <laughs> right, you don't see that anymore, right? Tickets sold. Yeah, they yeah. Some, oof, they had a series in Atlanta where two of the games in May where two of the games had fewer than eight thousand people. That was poor Ted Turner. He's like, what probably the, the absolute on? that was probably the absolute nadir of the Atlanta Braves franchise right before they Turn it around. Um, you, we, we made a reference to Todd Van Poppel, who like a year the, the Braves brand was so um, unappealing that you know Todd Van Poppel somehow, you know, swore he would not sign with them if he was drafted. They had a game where uh, Paul Kilgus lost to a young John Smoltz and Joe Baver got the save. I remember. I remember Chris Berman's nickname for Joe Baver, of course, was "Leave it to Baver." Leave it to Baver. So Sorry, clever. Was yeah. 1989 the year when uh, Scott Sanderson hyperventilated on the mound at uh, Dodger Stadium and they had to take him out of the game? I don't, I don't recall that. that was. I will say that in spite of the fact that Scott Sanderson was a, so, you know, a member of the rotation, by the way, moment of silence for Scott Sanderson. Yeah. Um, if appeared with the Cubs in 84, and, and we, we talked earlier about how we overrate wins from, you know, for, from all time. Scott Sanderson had his first multi or double digit victory season eight nine and and he was wasn't even really a regular part of the rotation he was still on the team he probably maybe made 20 starts i don't know but he actually achieved his career high in victories with with which if nothing else just shows you the mercurial nature yeah. of hey, he was points. 11 and 9 with 394 he made 23 starts and he made 14 relief appearances yeah he had a good year and then he left and then he had a renaissance like Jamie Moyer or Rick Russell like he ended up being an all-star, he probably won at least seventy-five more games in his career. It just felt he was always broken down. Scott Sanderson, I'll always think of two things: um, a, he was always injured, and then b, uh, whenever a runner got on base, or even maybe if he wasn't on base, uh, he was basically the progenitor of Steve Traxel. It's just like the human rain delay. Scott Sanderson, the, especially if a guy got on base. The eighty-nine forever. Cubs only used fifteen pitchers for the whole season. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, wow. they used David Ross just seven. Used yeah, he's fifteen in the doubleheader yesterday, um, and mostly because Holy they had the four of their. Well, I guess I was going to say I counted there. Three guys, three guys made pretty much made every start. Maddox, Sucklock, and Blackie. Yes, 
Okay. Uh, so that helps. Um, Sanderson is what would have probably passed for the fourth, I'm guessing. Yeah, but it's Sanderson, interesting. Well, Sanderson and Kilgus both made 23 starts. They both also oh, pitched in the bullpen. They had Kilgus, yeah. Um, other guys who made starts, Jeff Pico made five. Steve yeah. Wilson made eight. Okay. Um, the Canadian. And Joe Kramer made one. That was it. Those were the only I don't remember. That, that, that's it. Um, no recollection so, of Joe Kramer. Although I will say, did Pat Perry have an undefeated record in 89? I want to remember that that's nope. the case. He was 0-1 with a 1-7-70 ERA in 19 games. I thought he had some sort of he made. All right, got it wrong then. Well, he may have had a different. No, uh, no, no, no. Paul he, he was, um, No, he was acquired down the stretch. Year. He was acquired down the stretch in '89. So if he didn't have a good year, then that was another bad move by Jim Fry in that he did not even contribute to their success in September. Ostermacher, I'm almost certain, well, was Pat a trade. 19 was, games all out of the bullpen. He pitched well. He just didn't. He, was, he didn't get he any was, wins. Right, he was a deadline. He was a deadline deal, though. I know that. That well, you mentioned it. I think or no, Jody Davis. No, no, no. Maybe he was a deadline deal from the year before. I don't know. Well, there's an easy way to find out here. But Asenmacher ended up being with the Cubs all the way through 93 because he's yep. been discussed several times. Well, because he looks like Droopy the Dog and his name had Asen. Yes. I mean, why wouldn't That's you right. want to talk about right. it? That's right. We mentioned Don Asi and Paul Asenmacher tonight. Well, I know why you like why you're obsessed with Pat Perry. Who was Paul he traded Cardinal. for? Uh, Mel Hall? No. Wait, no. no. Your favorite Cub. My fit May nineteenth, nineteen eighty eight. From the Reds. Pat Perry and Cash to the Cubs for Leon Durham. Oh, poorly. A moment of silence for uh, Leon Durham. So he came over in eighty eight. Maybe eighty eight was the year he had though. Was he Maybe that was it. I, I yeah, and he I thought he'd been a former Cardinal too before he, he was, was with the Reds. Oh yeah. His, okay. his picture is he's a Cardinal. Yeah. No, he yeah. was two and two with a three thirty two win. He was never undefeated. So it's quite a nice thing, though, to go right from Leon Durham to Mark Grace, and then with a one-year gap to, well, a couple-year gap to Derek Lee, but Derek Lee to, uh, well, eventually Brian LaHare. Yeah, well, right. And then, they, and then but, some, but dip some dud named Anthony Rizzo, who may have just but, uh, driven in a run so the Cubs swept the Dodgers. Wow! Hey, thanks for that. So, fifteen pitchers. That's that's one of my takeaways. Uh, that and the fact that Mitch Williams did not walk the bases loaded. I'm gonna have to re-remember that now. Yeah. So I don't I don't spread misinformation because it it just seemed to fit the narrative that he would have walked the bases. That's not true. He was the victim of like some real babib bullshit. So some soft hit balls that found holes. So the um the big uh, the big deadline deal in Iraq. Oh, so the there was apparently no deadline deal. The um, Luis Salazar and Marvel Wynn was a waiver trade. It was August thirtieth, <laughs> and it was uh, Calvin Chiraldi to San Diego, Darren Jackson, and then okay. a player to name later who was the uh, the immortal Phil Stevenson, who okay. I think of every time I see Andrew Chafin. Because they pretty much look like the same guy. I, I'm impressed that you have a mental image of Phil Steve. I remember the name, but there's Squatty no guy with a mustache. All right, um, well, you nailed it. For yeah. Luis Elzar and Marvell Wynn. And um, what can you? Are you going to save your Marvell Wynn getting his ass beat by um, Sean Dustin in front of the dugout in St. Louis? I think it, ha- I think it happened in 1990. It, we, we it was the next year. It was 90. 
We might need some material. Things were tonight. things were falling apart for the ninety Cubs, and maybe make a note of that because oh, I I'll think that. of it because I it's all I ever think I, about. I don't want to. I don't want to. Yeah, I. I don't want to make I, nothing I like WGN coming coming on the air, and the first thing they show are two Cubs beating the shit out of each other in the turf. That was great. Oh, so see, I don't remember. So they showed it on TV. Already showed I it, thought, and Harry thought, and Steve talked about it. I thought your story was that you happened to be in St. Louis. No, that, like, oh, I know, for a Cubs I know. game. I've, you saw I've been to one Cardinal game ever in my life. I, I saw had. Willie McGee's uh, debut. In 1982, the yes. year they went to the World Series? Yep. Will you believe it if I told you that the other night I actually watched the 1982 World Series, like the recap? I was curious. I was rooting for the Brewers at the time. Fucking Willie McGee. Wait, 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 sure you couldn't remember how it turned out? I think Paul Mahler's going to do it. He got he got five hits in game seven. There's no way the Brewers could okay, lose. No, game, game one. And I'm like, oh, yeah, five how the one. hell did the, did the Brewers have Gorman in center field? Anyway, um. Yeah, that's that's a topic. We could talk about that when we talk about eighty-two, yeah. but that's a topic for another day. All right, well, that was fun. Eighty-nine Cubs. Yeah, I think uh, we covered it. One of my all-time, could... one of my all-time favorite teams. I mean, how could it not be? What we just went over, especially considering at the time that there was so much young talent. It, it's tragic in retrospect to know that they were already pulling the plug on a vibrant system. It had already been pulled when they got rid of forced out Dallas Green, and, and Jim Fry was quick to tear everything else and sell everything off at pennies on the dollar. Uh, and it was only obvious in retrospect what a good thing they have. What we saw what happened with Theo Epstein and whatnot, that's really what we should have seen if Dallas Green hadn't been forced out at least a couple pennants. If he was still in charge of that team in 89, I, there's no doubt in my mind that that would have been the first of you know two or three or even – way more trips to the to the playoffs but instead it was just a a sort of a the only thing that could have gotten in the way was the nl east was a bitch during those years yes it was look up uh the uh, 87 season when the cubs came last i think they had three 90 win teams year in year out you mentioned it in passing so 87 the cubs almost had the mvp and the cy young winner and they finished in last place yeah which is so misleading because they weren't that bad right but Expos were always pretty competitive. The Cardinals were pretty much usually there. The yeah, Mets, was... the Phillies. Yeah. I mean, the, the Phillies were bad by 89. They finally lost. They fell off the pace. And in fairness, the Cubs weren't always that competitive. But at least the Expos, Mets, Cardinals every year were going to be there. And then the others, the Pirates are pretty much perennial bottom dwellers. But, you know, you got you got three teams that are potential to win 90, 90 games in a six-team division. It's, that's going to be tough, tough. That's a tough road to yeah, hoe. I mean, it's impressive that the, the 80s Cubs playing in that division yeah. won two division championships because you had some of the best teams in baseball. Well, the 86 Mets. One of the top talent That's another one yeah. I watched. They keep, for some reason, they, they like to show games from that NLCS, and I just keep hoping that things will change and the Astros will beat right. them. <laughs> you had them. Damn you me. had the, the 82, 85, and 87 Cardinals. Yep. Yep. Um, it, it just seems like the Expos were, which should yeah. have been. Well, we'll get to that at some point. But we will, and that'll be fun too. But I, I'm glad we got to cover this. I feel confident that we, you know, we we covered all the ground here, all, all the, uh, you know, all the all the issues that needed to be covered. Yep. All right. Well, we'll we will spin again and see what Pro- we come up with. Probably bad. Atlanta crap, but that's just how the cookie crumbles. When There's a lot of crap to get through. That's why it's remember this crap, <laughs> not remember this excellence. No. All right. Well, thanks, Mike. Thanks, Andy. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Many of us have herpes. 